Section 23 of Thrift. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Thrift by Samuel Smiles. Great Debtors, Part Two. Savage had a pension of fifty pounds a year, which he usually spent in a few days. It was then fashionable to wear scarlet cloaks trimmed with gold lace, and Johnson one day met him, just after he had got his pension, with one of these cloaks upon his back, while at the same time his naked toes were sticking through his shoes. After living a life of recklessness and dissipation, he died in prison, where he had lain six months for debt. In concluding his Life of Savage, Johnson says this relation will not be fully without its use, if those who, in confidence of superior capacities or attainments, disregard the common maxims of life, shall be reminded that nothing will supply the want of prudence, and that negligence in irregularity, long continued, will make knowledge useless, wit ridiculous, and genius contemptible. Stern died poor if he did not die insolvent. At his death a subscription was got up for the support of his wife and daughter. Churchill was imprisoned for debt, occasioned by his dissoluteness and extravagance. Cowper, characterizing him as spendthrift alike of money and of wit. Chatterton, reduced to a state of starvation and despair, poisoned himself in his eighteenth year. Sir Richard Steele was rarely out of debt. In many respects he resembled Sheridan in temperament and character. He was full of speculation, and was always on the point of some grand stroke of luck which was to make his fortune. He was perpetually haunted by duns and bailiffs. Yet he did not stint himself of luxuries so long as he obtained credit. When appointed to the office of Commissioner of Stamps, with a moderate income. He set up a carriage with two and sometimes four horses, and he maintained two houses, one in London, the other at Hampton. His means being altogether inadequate to the style of living, he soon became drowned in greater debt than before. He was repeatedly impounded by lawyers and locked up in sponging houses. Executions were put into his houses. His furniture was sold off, his wife wanted the commonest necessaries of life, and still the pleasure-loving steel maintained his equanimity and good temper. Something great was always on the point of turning up in his favor. One of his grandest schemes was that for bringing fish alive to the London market, and then, said he to his wife, you will be better provided for than any lady in England but the good turn never came to Sir Richard, and he died out at elbows on his wife's little property in Wales. Goldsmith was another of the happy-go-lucky debtors. He swam in debt. He was no sooner out of it than he was plunged into it again deeper than before. The first money he earned as a tutor, it was all the money he had, was spent in buying a horse. His relations raised fifty pounds, and sent him to the temple to study law, 
but he got no further than Dublin, where he spent or gambled away all the money. Then he went to Edinburgh to study medicine, and was forced to fly from it, having become surety for a friend. He started on the tour of Europe, without any money in his pocket, with nothing but his flute, and he begged and played until he came back to England as poor as he went. He himself used afterward to say that there was hardly a kingdom in Europe in which he was not a debtor. Even when Goldsmith began to earn money freely, he was still in debt. He gave away with one hand what he earned with the other. He was done for his milk score, arrested for rent, threatened by lawyers, but never learnt the wisdom of economy. In the same month in which the second edition of his Vicar of Wakefield was published, his bill of fifteen guineas, drawn on Newbury, was returned dishonoured. When he was figuring at Boswell's dinner in Old Bond Street, in the rattan suit lined with satin, and bloom-coloured silk breeches, the clothes belonged to his tailor, and remained unpaid till his death. Prosperity increased his difficulties rather than diminished them. The more money he had, the more thoughtless and lavish was his expenditure. He could refuse no indulgence, either to himself or others. He would borrow a guinea and give it to a beggar. He would give the clothes off his back and the blankets off his bed. He would refuse nobody. To meet his thoughtless expenditure, he raised money by promising to write books, which he never began. He was perpetually discounting to-morrow and mortgaging an estate already overburdened. Thus he died, as he had begun, poor, embarrassed, and in debt. At his death he owed over two thousand pounds. Was ever a poet, says Johnson, so trusted before? The case of Goldsmith and others has been cited as instances of the harsh treatment of genius by the world, and in proof of the social disabilities of literary men and artists. It has been held society should be more indulgent to its men of genius, and that government should do something more for them than it does now. But nothing that society or government could do for men of genius would be likely to prove any service to them unless they will do what other and less gifted men do, exhibit self-respect and practice ordinary economy. We may pity poor Goldsmith, but we cannot fail to see that he was throughout his own enemy. His gains were large, amounting to about eight thousand pounds in fourteen years, representing a much larger sum of money at the present day. For his History of the Earth and Animated Nature he received eight hundred and fifty pounds, and the book was, at best, but a clever compilation, Johnson said of him, that if he can tell a horse from a cow, that is the extent of his knowledge of zoology. The representation of his good-natured man produced him five hundred pounds, and so on with his other works. He was as successful as Johnson was, but then he had not Johnson's sobriety, self-restraint, and self-respect. Yet Goldsmith, in his thoughtful moments, knew the right path, though he had not the courage to pursue it. 
in a letter to his brother Henry respecting the career of his son, Goldsmith wrote, quote, Teach, my dear sir, to your son thrift and economy. Let his poor wandering uncle's example be placed before his eyes. I had learned from books to be disinterested and generous before I was taught from experience the necessity of being prudent. I had contracted the habits and notions of a philosopher while I was exposing myself to the insidious approaches of cunning, and often, by being even with my narrow finances, charitable to excess, I forgot the rules of justice and placed myself in the very situation of the wretch who thanked me for my bounty. Close quote. Byron had scarcely reached manhood when he became involved in debt. Writing to Mr. Becker in his twentieth year, he said, Entre nous, I am cursedly dipped. My debts, everything inclusive, will be nine or ten thousand before I am twenty-one. On his coming of age, the festivities at Newstead were celebrated by means supplied by money-lenders at enormously usurious rates of interest. His difficulties did not diminish, but only increased with time. It is said that his mother's death was occasioned by a fit of rage brought on by reading the upholsterer's bills. When the first canto of Child Herald was published, Byron presented the copyright to Mr. Dallas, declaring that he would never receive money for his writings, a resolution which he afterwards wisely abandoned. But his earnings by literature at that time could not have lightened the heavy load of debt under which he staggered. Newstead was sold, and still the load accumulated. Then he married, probably in the expectation that his wife's fortune would release him, but her money was locked up, and the step, instead of relieving him, brought only an accession of misery. Everyone knows the sad result of the union, which was aggravated by the increasing assaults of duns and sheriff's officers. Byron was almost driven to sell the copyright of his books, but he was prevented from doing so by his publisher, who pressed upon him a sum of money to meet his temporary wants. During the first year of his marriage, his house was nine times in the possession of bailiffs, his door was almost daily beset by duns, and he was only saved from jail by the privileges of his rank. All this, to a sensitive nature such as his, must have been gall and bitterness, while his wife's separation from him, which shortly followed, could not fail to push him almost to the point of frenzy. Although he had declined to receive money for his first poems, Byron altered his views, and even learned to drive a pretty hard bargain with his publishers. But Moore does not, in his biography of the poet, inform us whether he ever got rid, except by death, of his grievous turmoil of debt. Footnote. You offer fifteen hundred guineas for the new canto, the fourth of Child Herald. I won't take it. I ask two thousand five hundred guineas for it, which you will either give or not, as you think proper. If Mr. Eustace was to have two thousand for a poem on education, if Mr. Moore was to have three thousand for Lala, if Mr. Campbell is to have three thousand for his prose or poetry, I don't mean to disparage these gentlemen or their labors, 
but I ask the aforesaid price for mine. Lord Byron to Mr. Murray, September 4th, 1817. End footnote. There is the greatest difference in the manner in which men bear the burden of debt. Some feel it to be no burden at all, others bear it very lightly, whilst others look upon creditors in the light of persecutors, and themselves in the light of martyrs. But where the moral sense is a little more keen, where men use the goods of others without rendering the due equivalent of money, where they wear unpaid clothes, eat unpaid meat, drink unpaid wines, and entertain guests at the expense of the butcher, grocer, wine merchant, and greengrocer, they must necessarily feel that their conduct is of the essence not only of shabbiness, but of dishonesty, and the burden must then bear very heavily indeed. Of light-hearted debtors the proportion is considerable. Thus Theophilus Kibber, when drowned in debt, begged the loan of a guinea, and then spent it on a dish of ortolans. Thus Foot, when his mother wrote to him, Dear Sam, I am in prison for debt, come and help your loving mother, replied, Dear mother, so am I, which prevents this duty being paid to his loving mother by her affectionate son. Steele and Sheridan both bore the load lightly. When entertaining company, they put the bailiffs, who were in possession in livery, and made them wait at table, passing them off as servants. Nothing disturbed Steele's equanimity, and when driven from London by debt, he carried his generosity into the country, giving prizes to the lads and lasses assembled at rural games and country dances. Sheridan also made very light of his debts, and had many a good joke over them. Someone asked him how it was that the O was not prefixed to his name, and he replied that he was sure no family had a better right to it, quote, for in truth we owe everybody, close quote. And when a creditor once apologized for the soiled and tattered state of the bill, which had been much worn by being so often presented, Sheridan advised him, quote, as a friend, to take it home and write it upon parchment, close quote. Very different was it in the case of poor Burns, who was almost driven distracted because he owed a debt of seven pounds for shillings, for a volunteer's uniform, which he could not pay. He sent to his friend Thompson, the publisher of his songs, imploring the sum of five pounds, promising full value in song genius. His last poem was a love song, in part payment for the loan, which he composed only a few days before his death. Footnote. Quote, After all my boasted independence, he said, cursed necessity compels me to implore you for five pounds. A cruel scoundrel of a haberdasher, to whom I owe an account, taking it into his head that I am dying, has commenced a process, and will infallibly put me in jail. Do, for God's sake, send me that sum, and by return of post. Forgive me this earnestness, but the horrors of a jail have made me half distracted. I do not ask all of this gratuitously, for upon returning health, I promise and engage to furnish you with five pounds worth of the neatest song genius you have seen. Close quote. 
Burns to Thompson, 12th July, 1796. Burns died on the 21st of that same month. End footnote. Sidney Smith had a severe struggle with poverty in the early part of his life. He had a poor living, a wide parish, and a large family. His daughter says that his debts occasioned him many sleepless nights, and that she has seen him in an evening when bill after bill has poured in, carefully examining them, and gradually paying them off, quite overcome by the feeling of the debt hanging over him, cover his face with his hands and exclaim, Ah, I see I shall end my old age in a jail. But he bore up bravely under the burden, laboring onward with a cheerful heart, eking out his slender means by writing articles for the Edinburgh, until at length promotion reached him, and he reaped the rewards of his perseverance, his industry, and his independence. Defoe's life was a long battle with difficulty and debt. He was constantly involved in broils, mostly of his own stirring up. He was a fierce pamphleteer from his youth up, and never for a moment at rest. He was by turns a soldier with the Duke of Monmouth, a pentile-maker, a projector, a poet, a political agent, a novelist, an essayist, a historian. He was familiar with the pillory, and spent much of his time in jail. When reproached by one of his adversaries with merchandariness, he piteously declared how he had, in the pursuit of peace, brought himself into innumerable broils, how he had been sued for other men's debts, and stripped naked by public opinion of what should have enabled him to pay his own, how, with numerous family, and with no helps but his own industry, he had forced his way, with undiscouraged diligence, through a sea of debt and misfortune, and, in jails, in retreats, and in all matter of extremities, supported himself without the assistance of friends and relations. Surely there never was such a life of struggle and of difficulty as that of the indefatigable Defoe. Yet all his literary labors, and they were enormous, did not suffice to keep him clear of debt, for it is believed that he died insolvent. Southey was, in his own line, almost as laborious a writer as Defoe, though his was the closet life of the student, and not the aggressive life of the polemic. Though he knew debt, it never became his master, and from an early period in his career he determined not to contract a debt that he was not able to discharge. He was not only enabled to this, but to help his friends liberally, maintaining for a time the families of his brothers-in-law, Coleridge and Lovell, by simply not allowing himself any indulgences beyond his actual means, though these were often very straitened. The burden he carried would have borne down a man less brave and resolute, but he worked and studied and wrote and earned money enough for all his own wants as well as the wants of those who had become dependent upon him. He held on his noble way without a murmur of complaint. He not only liberally helped his relatives, but his old schoolfellows in distress. He took Coleridge's wife and family to live with him, at a time when Coleridge had abandoned himself to opium-drinking. To meet the numerous claims upon him, 
Southey merely imposed upon himself so much extra labor. He was always ready with good advice to young men who sought his help. Thus he encouraged Kirk White, Herbert Knowles, and Dunsantoy, all of whom died young and full of promise. He not only helped them with advice and encouragement, but with money. And his timely assistance rescued the sister of Chatterton from absolute want. And thus he worked on nobly and unselfishly to the last, finding happiness and joy in the pursuit of letters, not so learned as poor, not so poor as proud, and not so proud as happy. These were his own words. The most touching story in Sir Walter Scott's life is the manner in which he conducted himself after the failure of the publishing house of Constable and Company with which he had become deeply involved. He had built Abbotsford, become a laird, was sheriff of his county, and thought himself a rich man, when suddenly the constable firm broke down, and he found himself indebted to the world more than a hundred thousand pounds. "'It is very hard,' he said, when the untoward news reached him, "'thus to lose all the labor of a lifetime, and to be made a poor man at last.' But, if God grant me health and strength, for a few years longer I have no doubt that I shall redeem it all. Everybody thought him a ruined man, and he almost felt himself to be so. But his courage never gave way. When his creditors proposed to him a composition, his sense of honor forbade his listening to them. No, gentlemen, he replied, time and die against any two though the debts had been contracted by others, he made himself legally responsible for them. And strong in his principle of integrity, he determined, if he could, to pay them off to the last farthing. And he set himself to do it, but it cost him his life. He parted with his town-house and furniture, delivered over his personal effects to be held in trust for his creditors, and bound himself to discharge a certain amount of his liabilities annually. This he did by undertaking new literary works, some of them of great magnitude, the execution of which, though they enabled him to discharge a large portion of his debt, added but little to his reputation. One of his first tasks was his Life of Napoleon Bonaparte, in nine volumes, which he wrote in the midst of pain, sorrow, and ruin, in about thirteen months, receiving for it about fourteen thousand pounds. Even though struck by paralysis, he went on writing, until, in about four years, he had discharged about two-thirds of the debt for which he was responsible, an achievement probably unparalleled in the history of letters. The sacrifices and efforts which he made during the last few years of his life, even while paralyzed and scarcely able to hold his pen, exhibited Scott in a truly heroic light. He bore up with unconquerable spirit to the last. When his doctor expostulated with him against his excessive brain-work, he replied, If I were to be idle I should go mad. In comparison to this, death is no risk to shrink from. Shortly before his last fatal attack, when sitting dozing in his chair on the grass in front of his house at Abbotsford, he suddenly roused himself, threw off the plaids which covered him, and exclaimed, 
This is sad idleness. Take me to my own room, and fetch the keys of my desk. They wheeled him into his study, and put pens and paper before him. But he could not grasp the pen. He could not write, and the tears rolled down his cheeks. His spirit was not conquered, but his bodily powers were exhausted and shattered. And when at last he died, he fell asleep like a child. Scott felt that every sensible nature must feel that poverty is a much lighter burden to bear than debt. There is nothing ignominious about poverty. It may even serve a healthy stimulus to great spirits. Under gold mountains and thrones, said Jean-Paul, lie buried many spiritual giants. Richter even held that poverty was to be welcomed, so that it came not too late in life. And doubtless Scott's burden was all the heavier to bear, because it came upon him in his declining years. Shakespeare was originally a poor man. It is a question, says Carlyle, whether had not want, discomfort, and distressed warrants been busy at Stratford von Avon, Shakespeare had not lived killing calves or combing wool. To Milton's and Dryden's narrow means, probably we owe the best part of their works. Johnson was a very poor man, and a very brave one. He never knew what wealth was. His mind was always greater than his fortune, and it is the mind that makes the man rich or poor, happy or miserable. Johnson's gruff and bluff exterior covered a manly and noble nature. He had early known poverty and debt, and wished himself clear of both. When at college his feet appeared through his shoes, but he was too poor to buy new ones. His head was full of learning, but his pockets were empty. How he struggled through distress and difficulty during his first years in London, the reader can learn from his life. He bedded and boarded for fourpence halfpenny a day, and when too poor to pay for a bed, he wandered with savage full nights in the streets. He struggled on manfully, never whining his lot, but trying harder to make the best of it. Footnote. Quote, he said a man might live in a garret at eighteen pence a week. Few people would inquire where he lodged, and if they did, it was easy to say, Sir, I am to be found at such a place. By spending three pence in a coffee-house, he might be for some hours every day in very good company. He might dine for sixpence, breakfast on bread and milk for a penny, and do without supper. On clean shirt day, he went abroad and paid visits. Close quote. Boswell, Life of Johnson. End of footnote. These early sorrows and struggles of Johnson left their scars upon his nature, but they also enlarged and enriched his experience as well as widened his range of human sympathy. Even when in his greatest distress he had room in his heart for others whose necessities were greater than his own and he was never wanting in his help to those who needed it, or were poorer than himself. From his sad experience no one could speak with greater authority on the subject of debt than Johnson. Quote, Do not accustom yourself, he wrote to Boswell, to consider debt only an inconvenience, 
you will find it a calamity. Let it be your first care not to be in any man's debt. Whatever you have, spend less. Frugality is not only the basis of quiet, but of beneficence. Close quote. To Simpson the barrister, he wrote, quote, Small debts are like small shot. They are rattling on every side and can scarcely be escaped without a wound. Great debts are like cannon of loud noise, but of little danger. You must therefore be enabled to discharge petty debts, that you may have leisure with security to struggle with the rest. Sir, said he to the patient and the receptive Boswell, get as much peace of mind as you can, and keep within your income, and you won't go far wrong. Men who live by their wits, their talents, or their genius, have somehow or other acquired the character of being improvident. Charles Nodier, writing about a distinguished genius, said of him, quote, In the life of intelligence and art he was an angel. In the common practical life of every day he was a child. Close quote. The same might be said of many great writers and artists. The greatest of them have been so devoted, heart and soul, to their special work that they have not cared to think how the efforts of their genius might be converted into pounds, shillings, and pence. Had they placed the money consideration first, probably the world would not have inherited the products of their genius. Milton would not have labored for so many years at his paradise lost, merely for the sake of the five pounds for which he sold his first edition to the publisher. Nor would Schiller have gone on toiling for twenty years up to the topmost pinnacles of thought, merely for the sake of the bare means of living which he earned by his work. At the same time, men of genius should not disregard the common rules of arithmetic. If they spend more than they earn, they will run into debt, nor will complaining of the harshness of the world keep them out of it. They have to stand or fall on their merits as men, and if they are not provident they will suffer the same consequences as others. Thackeray, in painting the character of Captain Shandon in his Pendennis, gave considerable offence to the literary profession, yet he only spoke the truth. Quote, if a lawyer, said he, or a soldier, or a parson outruns his income, and does not pay his bills, he must go to jail, and an author must go too. Close quote. Literary men are not neglected because they are literary men, but they have no right to expect that society would overlook their social offenses because they are literary men. It is necessary for the world's sake, as well as for their own sake, that literary men and artists should take care to provide against the evil day like other people. Imagination and art, says Madame Stell, have needed to look after their own comfort and happiness in this world. The world ought to help them generously. All good men ought to help them. But what is better than all, they ought to help themselves. In section 23.